Well, what we have been doing these last several weeks is we have been endeavoring to learn more about who Jesus is, and we've been using the Gospel of John for that. So I want to invite you to return to the Gospel of John. I'm grateful for Zach filling in for me last week where he covered a large part of John chapter 11. So we're going to start this morning in John chapter 12. And as we've been working through this gospel together, it's occurred to me that the first 33 and a half years of Jesus' life are recorded in the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John, but really the last week or so of his life is recorded in chapter 12 to the end of the book, chapter 21. The writer, John, really slows down here as if to say, this you really got to get. This is the most important part of Jesus' story until we get to begin that today. Would you join me and let's just take some time to pray together. Father, this is a gift for us to be able to talk to you. It's possible through just what has been sung about through Jesus' death and his resurrection that we have a relationship with you. And so this is a gift that you've provided, and we want to utilize it right now and say thank you for the week that is before us, the week that we can remember that Jesus not only came to teach, perform miracles, but he ultimately came to die on the cross for us. But he did not remain dead, but he raised again three days later. And so, Father, as we think about the passage that's before us, help Use this to prepare our hearts, not only for today, this afternoon, but the rest of the week as well. Uh, May we consider our lives and and offering them back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early 1900s, there was a classic short story written by O. Henry uh, by the name of The Gift of the Magi. And the story depicts... uh, a young couple that was in love with one another. His name was Jim, and his girlfriend's name was Della. Neither of these two had much. They were poor, but it was approaching Christmas time, and they wanted to give a gift to one another. Now, the most precious possession that Della had was her long, flowing hair. In fact, when she let it down, it was like this exquisite robe. And the most precious gift that Jim had was a watch, a golden watch that his father had given to him long ago. With Christmas Eve approaching, they thought to themselves, how am I going to bless my boyfriend or girlfriend? And so what Della did is she took the most, most important possession she had, her hair, and she went down to the store and she had it cut and sold for $20. When you add that $20 to the $1.87 she had, she was able to purchase something precious to her man, Jim. And so she purchased this very fancy um, chain for his watch. And she could not wait for Jim to get home that Christmas Eve night to present him with that gift. And when he walked through the door, he quickly noticed that her hair had been cut And then he began to open this package in which he found this chain for his watch. And the countenance of his face sunk 
because he too had a package for his girl, Della. And as she opened it, well, you probably know the story, it was some combs. It was a, a, a jeweled-edged tortoise shell comb that he had purchased by selling his watch to give to her. And so the two looked at the, the gifts that was presented, and they both realized that they had given really all, the most precious thing they had to display love. Real love cannot think of any other way to give. As we look at this passage today, in John chapter 12, there will be a theme for us, and that is giving gifts. We're going to see at the very first couple of verses of John chapter 12 that there are gifts being presented to Jesus. But by the end of the passage that we cover today, we're going to see that Jesus offers the ultimate gift for us in his death that we've been singing about today. So we believe that the Bible here is the very Word of God, that it is preserved for us by the Holy Spirit of God, and that if we want to know who God is and who Jesus is, what we do is we read the Scriptures and we understand what they have to say. So let's just offer a careful reading now of John 12. I'll read the verse, first one, and then I'll start at the beginning of verse 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. As we look at verse 1, we see that there is a a festival called the Passover, of which the people are gathering to attend. This festival is something we could trace back to the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, where God miraculously delivered his people from the control of the Egyptians. And he did this in such a way that he wanted his people to always remember this Passover. And so the people would gather together in the city of Jerusalem every year to reflect on God's goodness to his people. It says there in verse 1 that they had come to Bethany. Yesterday, I took out my phone and I did a quick Google search of how far Jerusalem was to Bethany. And I discovered that it was about a one hour, one and a half hour walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. Now, if you were here last week or you've read John chapter 11, then you know Lazarus. Lazarus was the man who was actually died and Jesus raised him to life. This might be a little personal, but I'm wondering in our room this morning, has there any, been anyone here at one time in their life that has been resuscitated? That at one time the doctor or nurses have proclaimed you dead, but you've been brought up alive again? I see your hand, Mel, and I expected it to go up. <laughs> and we are certainly glad, are we not, that you are still with us today? Amen. <laughs> Amen. But my guess is that you weren't, you weren't dead for a full day, or two days, or three days, or four days, because that's how long Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him to life. And we see here in John chapter 12 that there is a dinner in verse 2 that is being offered for him. Now, the story that we're looking at in the first eight verses of John chapter 12 is told in other places as well. The Gospel of Matthew 
in the Gospel of Mark. And they'll provide some more information. And and they'll tell us that the house in which this meal was at was actually owned by a man named Simon. And Simon at one time had leprosy. And so this is a meal that is given in tribute to Jesus to reflect on the blessings that he has brought to people's lives. I can imagine there at the meal what the conversation was about. As Simon would express to the people, at one, one time I had leprosy. This was a skin disease that prevented me from feeling anything, from feeling sensation or pain. And I could walk down the street and I could bump my toe into something and I wouldn't feel anything. And I could get an infection into my toe or my foot and it could spread throughout my leg, but I wouldn't know it because one with leprosy can't feel it. And I was an outcast. I never got to see my family or my friends. And then Jesus came. And at that moment, he healed me. And now my health has been restored and I can be with my family and my friends again here. I want to give tribute to what Jesus has done. And There at the same meal, Lazarus might have said, now that's a good story, Simon. But let me share with you what Jesus did for me. I was dead for four days. And during that time, I'm using some imagination now, I got to see some of our Old Testament heroes like Abraham and Moses and David. I got a chance to talk to them. And then Jesus brought me back to life. Now, the the thing that we'll see here in verse 2, the next part, it says, So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served And Lazarus was one of them reclining with him at the table. Now in John 11, we learn that Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And we've read about Mary and Martha in another location in the New Testament before. There was a time in Luke chapter 10 where Mary and Martha were at this meal and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha, the other sister, was serving. And she was getting upset about this. It's said there in Luke 10, verse 40, where she comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So as we look at this passage here in John chapter 12, we're looking for gifts. The first gift, if you have your outline, is this. Martha offered her spiritual gift of service. We see it there in verse 2, that Martha during this meal was serving. Now, how many people would have been in the room that day or in that house? Well, there were 12 disciples. There is Jesus, that's 13. There's Mary, there's Martha, there's Lazarus, there's the owner of the home, that's Simon, that's four, that's 17. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that there's at least 20 people that Martha is serving. But there's no complaining going on here. She is grateful to be able to offer her worship to Jesus in the form of service. Family, do you realize that the moment you became a Christian that the Spirit of God gave you a gift. It's called a spiritual gift. And for, uh, for Martha, it was the gift of service. 
But the New Testament offers other gifts that you may or may not have. It could be the gift of preaching or teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, mercy, wisdom, shepherding, that is overseeing a group of people, a missionary, the evangelist, the one who shares the good news of Jesus. We bless Jesus, we bless his church, and we bless ourselves when we use our spiritual gift. Martha worshipped with her service. But she has a sister here in verse 3 that's going to worship with a tangible gift. Let's look at the next part here in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. As Mary... This other sister reflects on the goodness and kindness of Jesus. How he has saved her from her sins. How he has answered this prayer to see their son live, or rather her brother live, Lazarus. She is looking, how can I express my love and appreciation to Jesus? And so what she does is she takes the most precious possession she has, And she offers it to Jesus. Now I admit to you that there's a cultural gap here. Why would someone offer perfume and put it on another person's feet? Let's look here again at this verse 3. It says, a pound of expensive ointment. In our day, a pound is 16 ounces. But in the Roman day, it was between 11 and 12 ounces. So we can think of a can of pop or a can of soda. You see here, it was expensive ointment. We'll find out here in a moment that the value of this was about a year's wage. It says that it is of pure nard. Nard was from a root in northern India. It was pure. It wasn't a knockoff. Perhaps one of the reasons it was so expensive was the transportation to get it from northern India to there in Bethany. There's a couple of thoughts here that I want to make about this gift of love that she presents to Jesus. Number one, it is completely voluntary. There is no manipulation or coercion by Jesus to say, when you think about all that I've done for you, the least you can do is offer me something in return. No, this is a way of willfully, deliberately saying, I want to express my love to you. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their recording of this incident, uh, uh, write that initially uh, Mary started anointing Jesus' head. And John, we see that she anointed his feet. In addition, she gave her glory here. She was giving her glory. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, a woman's glory is connected to her hair. Uh, it's one of those things where her hair is, is tied a bit to her identity. Perhaps that's why when a woman has a bad hair day, that that affects everything about their life that day. As we were sitting around as a family, we were reading this passage last night, I, I stopped and I asked my wife, I said, Melody, Could you explain to to myself and our five boys the significance of hair 
to a woman. And she says, that's absolutely right. A woman's hair is just vitally important to her. And I remember in my early years as we were dating and as we were married that I, I did not understand that. In fact, I, I still don't know that I understand that. But the topic of a conversation would frequently come up during our date nights or our times together where Melody would talk about her hair. Do you like it when I do it this way? What do you think about if I did it this way? You know, I like that. Do you like that? Because I was thinking about doing that myself. And I would just have this glazed over look over my, over my eyes. And, and I'm not suggesting this is one of my finer moments in marriage, but I eventually made an agreement with her that if she would stop talking about her hair, she could do anything she wanted with it. <laughs> and for 18 years, that's been a, a very good arrangement. So, <laughs> But this was something that she had offered her glory. I want you to think about that for a moment, that she was using her hair. It would be something that would have been very unusual during this first century for a Jewish woman to let her hair down in public It would have been preserved for very intimate moments with her husband. And she takes that glory and offers it by wiping Jesus' feet with it. The third thing I think we see here is her reputation. She is offering that. In this culture, and I think probably in our culture, we don't touch one another's feet. When we've gone on a mission trip to West Africa and Senegal... A lot of times, because of the heat, we're wearing sandals. And I remember, I think it was last year, as we were walking these paths, these dirt paths, and I looked down at my my son's feet, and they were just caked in dirt. And I said, Abe, this gives us a whole new understanding of what it looks like to wash another's feet in the Bible, or in Mary's case, to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. It also was one that she gave up her future. What do you mean by that? Well, very likely this perfume was, was her dowry. Now, what do I mean by that? Back in the first century, when an, a marriage was arranged, a, a young man would approach the young woman with an arranged marriage from her parents, and, and he would give a gift to the bride and her family, but there would also be a gift that the bride would give to the young man and young man's family. And this would have been that gift. So by giving this ointment, by giving this perfume, she was, in effect, giving up her future as well. Now let's read a little bit more how this is received in verses 4 and following. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because he cared about the poor, not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Why did she offer this perfume? We find it there in verse 7. It was in preparation for Jesus' death. When a person, you can even think of a roadkill or an animal dies, it's not too long before a distinct odor sets in. 
And in order to mask that odor, a dead body would be having perfume or, or ointment. And so Mary understands what's going to happen to Jesus, that he has come to offer his life for people's sins. And so as a result, Jesus said, leave her alone. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's recorded that Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And even more, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I've thought to myself this week, why was it that Mary, of all people, understood what Jesus was about to do? But as we read the gospels, we find out that his own disciples often did not understand what Jesus was going to do. Why was it that Mary seemed to have this special insight? I'm not sure if I understand, but some commentators have suggested because we often see Mary at Jesus' feet. We see Mary at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10. We see Mary at Jesus' feet here in John chapter 12. It seems to suggest that she was humbly willing to slow down and listen to the teachings of Jesus. And he was saying the same words to everyone else. But it was Mary who understood them. One great Bible teacher named G. Campbell Morgan said, I would rather be a successor to Mary of Bethany than to the whole crowd of apostles. So there's the gift of offering a spiritual gift. There's also the one that offered a very expensive, tangible gift to Jesus. And we see in this passage that Judas, one of Jesus' followers, offered empty words. As we look there at verses 4 and 5, it sounds like what he has to say is very good, but it comes from a very bad heart. It sounds like what he is saying is, this money should have been given to the poor, but he has no concern at all for the poor. He was a thief that would take the offerings and help himself to a portion of it. Mark chapter 14 tells us that following this rebuke by Jesus, Judas will go and make plans to betray Jesus. So Judas offered empty words. Let's look at verses 9, 10, and 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As we have followed through the Gospel of John, we have observed seven different miraculous signs that Jesus did. In John chapter 2, he turned the water into wine. In John 4, he healed the, the royal official's son. In John 5, he healed the paralytic at the pool. In John 6, he fed the 5,000 with fish and bread. In John 6, he walked on water. In John 9, he gave sight to the blind man. And in John 11, he brought Lazarus back to life. And instead of these people, these religious people, 
assessing the life of Jesus and all the miracles he performed and drawing an honest conclusion that he truly must have come from God, that he must be God, they said, we want to just destroy the evidence. And and exhibit A of Jesus being God was that he had raised this man who had been dead for four days. Instead of honestly assessing that, they say, we got to make plans to kill him as well. And so then we have in verse 12. Verse 12 is the the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And we read here in verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the next day in verse 12 is Sunday. The large crowd, how large of a crowd had gathered there in Jerusalem for this feast of the Passover? One historian, Josephus, has recorded between 2 and 2.5 million people would have assembled in Jerusalem for that feast. Milwaukee has around a million. Think of twice that had gathered for this feast. Verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when he saw Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had not been to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that there is a large crowd that offers fickle praise. When I say fickle, I just mean that on one day they're going to be for Jesus, but just five days later they're going to be against Jesus. There is this large crowd that we see there in verse 12, and they are caught up in the emotional moment of the time. It was a cool thing on this Palm Sunday to have an interest in Jesus. You'll notice here in verse 13 that they waved palm trees or branches These were symbols of victory and peace. They shouted out a word, Hosanna, which means save us, Lord. They even quoted scripture. They quoted from Psalm 118, verse 6, there in verse 13. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then there's a strange thing that takes place there in verse 14, that Jesus is sitting on a, on a donkey. Now, why is that? In verse 15, there's a quotation there f- from a prophecy 500 years earlier than that from Zechariah that says there will be one that will come to the daughter of Zion. That's just another word for Jerusalem. And he will be sitting on a donkey. Back in this time, it would not have been unusual for a large parade to take place. In fact, if a Roman commander had led his army out 
and there was a great conquest of which over 5,000 enemy soldiers were slain, then that commander was entitled to a ticker tape parade. Can you imagine what it would have looked like in Rome as one of these great conquests had taken place and now the, the soldiers of Rome are coming back and there's that street is lined with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, all celebrating the strength of this commander. Can you see him on a chariot? Can you see him on a stallion? As he sticks his chest out as if to say, look at what I have accomplished. On Palm Sunday, there was a different king that is coming down the streets of Jerusalem. And of all things, he is not on a chariot, not on a stallion, but he is on a donkey. I don't know how many of you in your early years, or maybe even today, have had a donkey. But my mom, in my teen years, she still has this kind of interest. I have a hobby farm, and at one time, we had a donkey. And uh, as I can think of a grown man sitting on a donkey, maybe the, the tips of his toes would drag across the ground. But what I've learned this week is that the size of a donkey during the first century in the Holy Land would have been significantly smaller than that. In fact, for Jesus to have rode on a donkey, he would have had his knees bent dramatically in order to ride. The donkey symbolized humility. Whereas the Roman commander would come and demands respect because of sheer brute force, Jesus has come in a different way. They called out, Hosanna, that is, save us, save us. And what they are thinking is that this Messiah, this promised one will come and liberate them with a military campaign against the Roman soldiers. But he has come to save, all right, just not that way. He has come to save them from their sins. And on one Sunday, they are shouting out and they are praising Jesus. But five days later, on Good Friday, they will be shouting out again, but they'll be saying something entirely opposite. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Is that not true still today? There are people at one time that get swept up in emotion and they say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. But then just a week or two or a month later, they are just as passionately about following their selfish sin as they once were about Jesus. There's a a fickle praise. You'll notice there at the end of verse 19, it says that the Pharisees, these, these religious leaders who did not like Jesus, were upset because they were observing all these people that were coming to see him. And they make this claim. It says, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And oh, how we wish that were true, don't we, family? That the whole world was seeking Jesus. I don't remember much about grammar school, but I remember the word hyperbole. It just means that 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 was an exaggeration. There were a lot of people that expressed interest, but they weren't really after following him. This leads us to some people who were genuinely seeking him. The Greeks offered their searching hearts. Look at verse 20 and following. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
to contrast these Jews that wanted to reject Jesus, there were some outsiders. They were not Jews. They are what we call Gentiles. But they had come to learn about Jesus. Verse 21 says, So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. If you remember how the story began with Jesus, when we think about Christmas, you remember that there were wise men from the east that came. They wanted to worship Jesus. Now, here at the end of Jesus' life, there were other wise men that are coming. These Greeks would have been philosophers, but they were not coming from the east. They were coming from the west. And they have just one desire, sir, We wish to see Jesus. Why do they come to Philip? Philip's name was a Greek name. Perhaps they thought they had an inside with him. And why did Philip go to Andrew? Well, Andrew, throughout the New Testament, has this pattern of always bringing people to Jesus. And so the final gift that we see in our passage here, number six, is Jesus gave his life to offer eternal life to all. In verse 23, it says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come, for the Son of Man may be glorified. If you've been following along with us in the Gospel of John's study, you know that there are three different times where Jesus had said, The hour has not yet come. We saw that in John 2, we saw it in John 7, we saw it in John 8. But now in John 12, he says, Okay, the time is ready for me to reveal who I am and why I have come. And then he says in verse 24, a great little metaphor. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he says, imagine you have a a grain of wheat. The grain of wheat is of no use at all. It will never fulfill its purpose unless it's put into the ground. And when it's put into the ground, it will die. And by dying, it will, it will give life to others. And this is a picture of why Jesus has come. He's saying to the Greeks, Greeks, you want to see me? You want to see Jesus? You see me through why I have come. I have come to die for your sins. I have come to die that I might bring a harvest, that there would be others who would be able to experience eternal life and have a relationship with Jesus. He not only says this for himself, but he also models for us that this is the way we are to live as well, that we are to give up ourselves so that others may live. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. In verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What he is saying here is if one is going to love what the world has to offer to them, the pleasure, the possessions, man's praise, 
the, the instant gratification, if they are just going to embrace that fully, they'll never be able to follow Jesus. But if they will give up those things and seek after Jesus, they will experience eternal life. And when you serve Jesus, his Father will honor you. So let me just close with this question. What will you offer to Jesus? Do you think Jesus wants your stuff, your perfume, your most precious possession? I don't have an answer for that right now, but I can tell you I think what he does want. And that is, he wants you. He wants your life. George Miller, one of my favorite Christians from years ago, was one that had a heart for not only the pastorate, but also for orphans. And, and God used him to raise a, a whole bunch to be able to take care of thousands upon thousands of orphans. One day, someone came up to George Miller and says, what has been the secret of your life? He hung his head and said, there was a day when I died. Then he bent lower and said, Died to George Miller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. It was a place where he just said, I want to die. And I want Jesus to rule over everything in my life. What will you offer to Jesus? Will you offer to him your life. In Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote this. He says, I appeal to you in light of what Jesus has done for you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of Jesus coming to save you from your sins, a light of all the goodness that God has brought to you. How shall you live? What shall you offer to him? The answer, I think, is all of you. There's a great story that maybe you've heard before. It's been shared before. It's of a church that had a passion for people that were not Christians yet. And one of the things they did is they had a bus. And they would go into the city and try to bring as many people to the church as they could on a Sunday morning. And so there was a bus driver who just had a passion to see people become Christians. And he would knock on doors. And and one day he knocked on a door and there was this little boy dressed in shabby clothes. And he said, hey, young man, I would love to bring you to our church on Sunday. Is it okay with your mom and dad? And the boy asked his mom and dad, sure, they, they would love for me to go. Okay, I will pick you up at a certain time at this location and I will bring you to church. And that bus driver made good, came by, and he picked up that boy. And he had a big smile on his face, dressed in his shabby clothes. And and all all that young boy saw was the love of Jesus in that bus driver's face. He drove him to their little church, got him out of that bus, walked him over to a Sunday school teacher, a real sweet lady. And he said, this is his name, and this is going to be the class you're in, as this little boy sat in that class. All he saw was the love of Jesus over that Sunday school teacher. 
following the Sunday school class, the teacher walked this little boy into the auditorium, something like this. And as that little boy looked around, he saw people dressed in nice clothes. And they, he heard him sing songs about Jesus. He heard the pastor preach about Jesus. And then near the end of the service, they did something really strange. They handed out plates of which people were putting money in as an offering. And as he watched this, he thought, I've never seen anything like this before. And as the plate went through his aisle, his Sunday school teacher reached out, put some money, and it went past him. And he thought for a moment, he said, well, I don't have anything to put in that. He looked down at his shabby clothes and, and didn't really have any possessions at all. And as about as that plate was about to make its way behind the aisle behind him, he stopped and he said to the usher, hey, can I put something in there? And he thought for a moment, sure, sure, what, what would you like to do? And the little boy took the plate and he put it on the ground and he stepped into it. And he said, I want to give all of myself to Jesus. Would you say that that's where you're at today? And if not, what is keeping you from that? We've been speaking about the gift today. The great gift has been given to you through Jesus. He has died on the cross for you. In return, I would say, would you give him all of yourself? You know, we call this sometime an altar. It's not that we burn sacrifices up here, but it's a way that we can just present ourselves and present our burdens to God. As we do a a song of invitation today, as it's being played Perhaps the Lord would lead you, kind of like that woman that had hair and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. It's like, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to come, and I'm going to present myself here at the altar say, God, whatever it is you want of me. You know, during the Christmas buildup, we have something called the adoration service, of which we prepare our hearts so that we don't miss what Christmas is all about. Perhaps we'll have our own little Resurrection Sunday version of adoration service this morning where we would come and say, this is a holy week. This is a special week. I don't want to miss it. I want to I take this week seriously. Let me, let me begin it by being here at the altar and just praying and say, I want to give you all of my life. Would you pray with me as the music team comes? Our Father, thank you for this, this wonderful example We see this woman, she didn't have much, but she offered Jesus the most precious thing she had. It was this ointment, it was this perfume. Probably many of us in the room would say, I don't have much. Probably have more than what she had, but would we be willing just to offer ourselves to God, to Jesus, and say, whatever it is you want in my life, it's my spiritual gift, I want to exercise it, I want to use it for you. If it's possessions, if it's time, if it's other resources, I want to just offer it to you. I want to set the week off on the right step today. I just want to focus on you all week as I think about Jesus' death and his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.